0: Alright, well this morning we are beginning a brand new series and uh, I don't think it's going to be as long as the last series was. Uh, Boy, 19 uh, messages on the book of Philippians. I enjoyed it. I hope you did as well. Uh, So I don't anticipate this will be that long, but um, it's called Taking Your Place at the City Gate. It's going to be a journey. We're going on a little bit of a journey together as we explore this idea of the city gate in the scriptures. Now, about now, some of you are probably wondering, like, what in the world is Pastor Paul talking about? I mean, what in the world is he talking about with these city gates? I mean, we don't have city gates here. Our, our, our city isn't surrounded by walls with gates. It's not built that way anymore. And besides, even if we had city gates, why would I want to sit in one? Right? Well, those are all good questions, so let's explore it a little bit. In ancient Israel, The city gate is where all the stuff of the city happened. Everything that was going on, not everything, but a lot of the stuff that was going on happened in the city gate, simply because of the architecture, the design of the city. People were funneled to the city gate. So if you're going to be coming into the city, you came through the city gates. If you're going out of the city, you go through the city gates. And uh, uh, because of that... All the traffic, all the people activity at the city gate, the area in and immediately surrounding the city gate became a natural place for people to gather for all kinds of activities to take place. I mean, if you were looking for a nice, quiet place to take a nap, the city gate was not for you. You should just stay at home on your farm under your sycamore fig tree and have a nice nap, right? But the city gate was often bustling with activity. So commerce happened there. I mean, it's only natural. If you needed to sell stuff, where do you go? You go where the people are. There was no, you know, uh, Amazon delivery or anything like that back then, right? You had to go where the stuff was being sold. You had to sell your stuff where the people are. So um, it was natural for people to set up and shop and sell food and clothing and whatever else they had to sell, right? An example of this can be found in Nehemiah, where Nehemiah said, Hey, you're not going to be selling stuff in the city gate uh, on the Sabbath. And it says these people showed up anyway by the city gates the night before waiting, and he went to them and said, hey, listen, you got to leave here. If you come here again, I'm going to lay hands on you. And it wasn't a Pentecostal prayer meeting type of laying hands on, if you know what I'm saying. All right, so um, there was commerce and there was legal transactions that took place at the city gates as well. You know, one example comes from the book of Ruth. Boaz wanted to marry Ruth, but in their culture, there was this thing called the kinsman redeemer. And uh, because she was a widow, the closest relative had the legal right to marry Ruth. So he goes to the city gate, gathers all the elders there, and there's this legal transaction that takes place at the city gate uh, where Boaz obtained the right to marry Ruth. And then they got married and lived happily ever after. They did. You read it. Okay, uh, and, okay. so the city gate is where you would go to get news about what's happening in the city. You would find out if the elders had made any proclamations for the city, or if there was any danger that was coming to the city. It's where you might uh, get together and discuss what was happening, right? Because they didn't have Facebook. They needed to spend some FaceTime with people, right? And so... Um, they would discuss things going on, and then justice took place at the city gates as well. The elders of the city would meet there, and so when some dispute arose, someone complained that somebody stole their ox or stole their sheep or, or 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 something. They would bring the case to the city gates, where the elders would hear the case, and then they'd render a decision. Right, and uh, an example of that can be seen. And when Joshua allotted all of the of the cities, he assigned several cities of refuge in case. You know, someone accidentally killed somebody or something So that the, uh, the we wouldn't have a mob mentality Instead, this person could flee to the city of refuge And it says that they would gather the elders at the city gate And they would hear the case Before this impartial, you know, jury, so to speak You know, you couldn't just have uh, this stuff going on, right? Uh, that, that was just kind of a mob rule type of thing You know, the avenger of blood, it said in, in, in those days, right? And so justice would happen And because of this, because of all these things Culture and the spiritual temperature of the city is often set at the city gates. And the idea is that, that these elders who were running the city should be godly, God-fearing people who honored the Word of God and so cherished the things of the Word of God. Things like truth and godliness and justice and mercy and, and things that are noble and pure and praiseworthy. All, all the things that build up a culture look at the scripture from proverbs 29 it says this when the righteous thrive the people rejoice but when the wicked rule the people groan when the righteous thrive the people rejoice but when the wicked rule the people groan now think about that for a second God says when the righteous thrive, when, when things that are good and honorable and true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and praiseworthy, right, when, when these things thrive, right, then people rejoice. And we could show you this over and over again from the scriptures and, and from history uh, how this is true. When the culture at the city gates, is so to speak, is characterized by righteousness and right things before God's eyes, the culture tends to... Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't any things in the culture, that the culture was perfect, or there aren't any bad things that ever happened, or there aren't any challenges that ever happened, or injustices to deal with. It just means that the culture that is characterized by these things tends to thrive. And another scripture says it like this in Proverbs 14. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin condemns any people. Look at this Passage here uh, in Second Samuel chapter twenty-three. You know, there's this interesting passage um, here in verses one to four, and I, and I want to take a look at it for a second. It's about King David, and you know, King David um, was Israel's greatest king. I mean, he had his problems; he wasn't perfect by by any, by any stretch of the imagination, but he he and the culture during his reign was generally. God fearing, God honoring, uh, and God worshiping, and what they're characterized by this worship of the one true God, right? And in these verses, we're near the end of David's life. And it says in verse 1 it says, These are the last words of David. The inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse. The utterance of the man exalted by the Most High. The man anointed by God, by the God of Jacob. The hero of Israel's. So so Israel's greatest king is about to say something, and and these are his last words on earth. So so what wisdom is he going to give us with his his dying breath, with his last words? Going on verse 2, he says, The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, all right. So, he's going to share something here that God told him. Share some wisdom that God had revealed to him. He isn't just giving any old wisdom that's just obtained from age or experience, right? These are the very uh, wisdom ideas of God Almighty. So, what did he say? Going on in verse 3. He says, when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, He is like the light of morning at the sunrise on a cloudless morning. Like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. Like when righteousness is exalted, when rulers and those who are setting the temperature at the city gates rule in the fear of God. It brings light. It's like the dawning of a new day with great possibilities. It's like the fruitfulness that comes after the rain. It produces growth. And it produces life, and those are the results of righteousness in when, when righteousness is in a culture and in its leaders. And so these elders at the city gates and the culture coming from the city gates are supposed to be that, supposed to promote all this godliness and the fear of God and the blessing of God and great possibilities for the culture and fruitfulness. But what if it didn't? If instead the city gate became a place of sin and dishonor and Injustice And a a place where the word of God was ignored and discarded and, and maligned. Then what happens? Well, according to our scripture in Proverbs 29, it says, When the wicked rule, the people groan. And in Proverbs 14, sin condemns any people. Another translation says it this way, sin is a reproach to any people. And another one says it like this, sin is a disgrace to any people. So when the things that happen at the city gate are dishonorable and false and impure and ugly and nasty, it tends to bring reproach and destruction. And then something else happens as well. Look at it. It's in Proverbs 29, verse 18. It says, Where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint. Where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint. When the Word of God is not informing a culture's morals and norms about how we do business, how we do entertainment, how we do education, how we do government, how we do the family, how we do society. The result is that people throw off restraints in all of these areas or in all of these city gates, if you will. And when the culture casts that off, when when they cast off the restraints of the Word of God, and they cast off the royal laws that say, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, when they cast off those things, then all the restraints come off as well. And the things that were once universally considered to be and understood to be wrong become accepted and then eventually become the norm and when that happens you have one of two things that inevitably happens either you end up with this with a stronger and stronger government that is needed to constrain people's actions or you end up with a situation like that which occurred in the book of judges where it says that each man did whatever was right in his own eyes a situation in which what is right is defined entirely by whoever has the most power like a bully on a playground Right, who has the most power and rules until some other bully comes and dethrones him and then, and then he's ruling. You know, James Madison, our fourth president, said it this way. He's, he's considered the father of our Constitution and, and uh, the author of the Bill of Rights. And he said this. He said, We have staked the whole future of American civilization not upon the power of government. Far from it. We have staked the future of all our political institutions on the capacity of mankind for self government, upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves, to control ourselves, to sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. I mean, he's talking about here the same thing that we're talking about. When the city gates become corrupt, when the city gates are corrupt, and when those who sit at the city gates throw off the restraints of the Word of God, it results in less blessing less favor, less growth, less opportunity, more and more injustice, leading to either a stronger and stronger government response or um, a mob rule by whoever are the strongest actors in each area of society, in each city gate, if you will, of society. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but our city gates are crumbling. I mean, and this is not something new. Sometimes you can think it's something new because it's happened so, so gradually, like that frog that's in the, in the pot that's just turned up really gradually and doesn't jump out as it gets hotter and hotter, right? Because this has been going on for at least 80 years or 100 years or so, at least. You know, in the nineteen forties, we, we said, you know, we can't have the Bible in any of our schools anymore. In the nineteen sixties, we said we can't have prayer in any of our schools uh, anymore. And, and and ever since, there's been this this long march towards trying to eliminate God from all of our city gates and in all of our our culture. And in some cases, there have even been attempts to reach into the church and try to make it conform to ungodly, unbiblical values, and sometimes to make individual Christians conform to ungodly, unbiblical values. Many of the gatekeepers in our culture have become godless. They lack the fear of God that King David spoke of, and in many cases have become hostile to the Bible and to those who follow Jesus. You know, I say in many, maybe not all, maybe not everybody who sits at our city gates of our culture, but but in many cases, think about this, in entertainment, many gatekeepers in entertainment have thrown off all restraint and unashamedly promote the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. I don't know how many of you have heard recently, most recent Netflix release called Cuties. Just a few of you have. There's been a big uproar over this because here is a movie that sexualizes 11-year-old girls. That's abhorrent. That's disgusting. Somebody else should say amen to that. That's abhorrent and disgusting. And as a response now, I mean, cancellations of Netflix have gone up over eight times just in the past 10 days since they released it on September 10th. But that's not new. That's not like the first thing. Did you know that on Netflix, more than 50% of the, their content that is designated as 14s is rated R or TVMA? Did you know that? Over 50%. So many in that gate, have thrown off restraint. Think about education for a minute as we've eliminated the Word of God. Godly values and biblical values and morals, you know, are, are at best, they're at best ambivalent to them, and or, or they're at best godless, and at worst, sometimes openly hostile. Now, not all teachers, please don't misunderstand me. Thank God for Christian teachers in our education system. But in many places, it's become openly hostile to biblical Values. You know, it was widely reported recently, uh, maybe you saw it, one teacher in Philadelphia, very concerned, as they were going to be doing online classes, that during these virtual classes, parents might be listening and might be undermining what they are trying to do. Am I the only one who saw this? A few of you saw that? And he said, this is a direct quote, How much have students depended upon the secure barriers of our physical classrooms to engage vulnerability?" How many of us have installed some version of what happens here stays here to help this? Well, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. You know, how many teachers have have installed that type of an attitude in in their classrooms? But it seems to this teacher like he believes it's kind of normal. It was the norm. And I have this question. Now, he was talking about there. he was talking specifically about their discussions about um, human sexuality and identity, gender identity. And I have this question. Why do teachers need to be discussing that in the classroom? I mean, this is not reading, writing, and arithmetic anymore. I know that happens as well, but this is not just only that. You know? And if they do need to discuss it, why do they need to hide it from parents? Now again, don't misunderstand me. I know, there may be many teachers out there who are not doing this and they're, and they're, they're, not, um, they're not hiding it from parents, alright? But in many cases they are. One school district tried to get parents to sign a waiver that they would not listen to anything going on in their kids' classroom. And he went on to talk about this, um, the danger, the damage that parents can do in their discussions about gender and sexuality as they as the teachers were engaged in the messy work of destabilizing homophobia and transphobia. Now, I don't claim to know the exact extent that all this is going on, you know, but I do know this. We need godly gatekeepers in education. And then government's often hostile as well. And in the family, I I don't even know if you've noticed, the family, God's idea for the family is under attack in our culture as well. Nearly every other area of culture, at every other gate... They've thrown off restraints and biblical morals. When there's no revelation, it says, the people throw off restraint. And so as we proceed through this series, when, when, when we're talking about the city gate and what happens there, uh, our, the place in our society where culture happens, right? Entertainment, education, commerce, ju- the job site, marketplace, government on all levels, and family church. You know, we're talking about these city gates. And another word that you might use from the scriptures is the marketplace. Like by the time we get to Paul in, in, in Acts, um, he went to what was called the Agora, or the marketplace. And all of these things that we're talking about happened there. So whether we use the word marketplace or, or the city gates, we're talking about the same thing here. So now it's here, it's at this point that I would just kind of want to stop and, and, and ask this question. So what? I mean, so what? What does this mean for us? What does this have to do with my life here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania? I mean, what does this have to do with my life in hometown USA? And I want to begin to answer that by looking at something Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is really where we're headed. If you've tuned me out this morning... All right, if you've been sleeping a little bit, can you tune me back in? Really, right here, okay? This is really what I really, really want you to hear. Some of you are laughing, right? Some of you are trying not to look me in the eye. I can see it right now, right? This is the most well-known sermon, probably the most important sermon ever given. And it describes what life is like when you are ruled in here by the kingdom of God. Some people call this the Constitution of the Kingdom, or the Magna Carta of the Kingdom. Jesus is saying, this is what it looks like when you live according to the Kingdom, the rulership of God. And the verses we're going to look at this morning are chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, but let me set the scene for you just a little bit, alright? If you look at the end of chapter 4, you see that Jesus is talking to a really diverse group of people. There's a large crowd there and it says that some of them are from Jer- Jerusalem and Judea. They're from, they're, those are religious Jews from, from that area. And then there's some more rural Jews from Galilee. And then it says there's all these people from across the other side of the river from a place uh, called the Decapolis. That was a very pagan area. Ten very um, sort of Greek type of cities. And then there was also people from as far away as Damascus in Syria. So it's a very eclectic, very diverse group of people that he's giving uh this message to and and in the first 16 verses or so he kind of sets up for the rest of the sermon these verses are really the foundation of everything else that follows in chapters 5 6 and 7 in the sermon on the mount and uh he starts with these famous beatitudes and and a beatitude is simply a statement of blessing you'll be blessed if you're like this you'll be happy if if you're like you're like this and uh um, you're familiar with them, and even many non-Christians are familiar with them. You'll be happy or blessed if you're poor in spirit, if you're meek, if you're merciful, if you're hunger and thirst for what is right. If you're pure in heart, if you're a peacemaker, you'll be blessed, and you'll be happy and blessed if you're all of these things. And, you know, you don't even have to be a Christian to appreciate that, right? I mean, uh, you don't have to be a Christian to appreciate someone who acts like this. I mean, these are really good attributes. But then he says something a little strange, almost out of place, uh, really, until you understand it. In the eighth beatitude, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, wait a minute. Now, where in the world did this come from? I mean, who's going to be persecuting you because you're meek and you're mild and you're a peacekeeper and because you want to do what is right? Who persecutes people for that? Well, he shows us in the next verse. He goes on and says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Now, why would they be doing that? Going on, he says, because of me, because of Jesus. Now, why would people want to treat followers of Jesus this way? I mean, honestly, the most, the most positive message in the world is that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. I mean, the most positive message in the world is that this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and gave His one and only Son for us. That, that Jesus came to die for our sins, the just for the unjust, To bring us to God that we can be with Him forever. That's the most positive, uplifting message ever in the world. So so why would anybody want to speak evil against anyone with that message? Well, Jesus kind of explained that a little bit more. John chapter 15, starting at verse 18. He said, you know, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. So in the end, the acceptance or rejection of godly biblical values at the city gates has to do with the exception or rejection of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question comes, well, how are we to respond to this? To this situation that we find ourselves in? I mean, how do we respond when the gatekeepers of our culture have stopped promoting things that are are true and pure and right and praiseworthy and noble and instead of promoting the opposite of all that and are even beginning to oppose the expression of righteousness? And when those gatekeepers are saying all kinds of um, things against you falsely, well look at these next verses. These are our verses here, verses 13 to 16. He says, "You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. All right. Now, here in these verses, Jesus shows us what our response to verses 11 and 12 are supposed to be, right? To to when people speak all kinds of evil against you because of Jesus. How are you supposed to respond? He says, you're supposed to be two things. You're supposed to be two things. The first is this. Salt. We are the salt of the earth. Now what does that mean? You are salt. Now normally when you think of salt, uh, in our culture we think of like making something a little bit tastier, right? A little bit spicier, right? But in that culture the primary uh, use for salt was as a preservative. Because they didn't have ways of preserving food. And so um, Without refrigeration, without a freezer, you know, food would go bad pretty fast. And they needed another way to preserve it. So by adding salt, it acted as a preserver. When a Christian takes their place at the city gates, when a Christian is involved in some aspect of culture, like a Christian is involved in the entertainment industry, or in healthcare, or in business, or on the job site, or in education, or in government, when a Christian sits at one of those city gates and brings their values brings godly biblical values there you're preserving the culture you're the ones who are keeping it from turning completely bad thank God for the influence of Christians in business amen thank God for the influence of Christians in education thank God for the influence of Christians in healthcare and and in government and uh, for Christians that you can find in the entertainment industry the salt of the earth preserving culture You know what? It doesn't always have to be, by the way, with with some huge clash or anything like that. Sometimes it's just the addition of something positive. The the addition of a a positive song or a positive movie, right? Or or, um, a helping hand during a crisis pregnancy or a helping hand helping somebody come out of trafficking or something else. Or being positive in our culture. A lot of times it's just the addition of something positive from Jesus. You are the salt of the earth. And then Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Now, we know that Jesus is the true light, right? Uh, and we just reflect his light. It's kind of like, a, you know, Jesus is like the sun, the source of light. And we're more like the moon that, that reflects the light, right? Jesus is the true light. But he says to us, now you are the light of the world when we reflect the light of Jesus. Now, notice that Jesus points out something that should be obvious here, I think. It says, you don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl. You don't light a lamp and then hide it, right? Everybody knows that, right? And then he says something else that should be obvious, I think. He says, um, you put a lamp on its stand where it can fulfill its purpose. You put a lamp on its stand. And, and I think Jesus here is acknowledging something. I think he's acknowledging that, you know, when, when people speak all kinds of evil against you and persecute, all of that type of thing, because of him, because of the light, it can be easy to hide that light. Right? I mean, think about it. I have this light here. I, brought, I have lots of lights around here. But I brought this light here from my office, and I kind of like this light. Do you like this light? I like it. I mean, kind of got a nice little design here and everything. I kind of like this light. But what happens, someone comes along and just says, passes by and goes, you know what, I don't like that light. Well, maybe nothing, but then the next person comes along and says, um, you know what, that shade is not right for that light. And then someone else comes along and says, you know what, that light doesn't match any of these other lights. You know, why'd you buy that light? Why you got that light? You know, and then someone else comes along and looks inside and says, you know what, you got a 100 watt bulb in there. That's an awful lot of light. You don't really need that much light. Here, how about a 75 watt light instead? You know, and someone else comes along and says, no, a 60 watt light will do. And someone else comes along and says, no, all you really need is a 30-watt light. We don't need that much light. All you need is a 30-watt light. And then someone else comes along and says, why do we need light at all? You know, some people are trying to sleep over here. And then someone else comes along and says, I hate that light. I can't stand that light. Where do you get off shining light all around here? I mean, where do you get off shining light in the city gates? And you know what? That type of thing... Uh, happens enough times, and it can become kind of easy to just say, well, you know what, alright, you know, everybody seems to hate this light, so just do something like that. And maybe just enjoy the light a little bit, you know, by yourself and maybe with some of your friends who also seem to appreciate the light, you know, because no one else seems to, to, to want the light or appreciate the light. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, yes, let your light shine. Let it shine. He said, And where? Before people. Let it shine everywhere that you go. Let the light of God shine. Don't hide it. Don't put it under a bowl. Don't put it under a, a cloth or anything like that. Put it where it belongs. Let it do what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to illuminate things and so why should we do that because jesus says what he says that everyone in the house needs the light everybody needs the light and you know what if they think that the light of jesus reflected on his followers is too bright I mean, what are they going to do when they stand before the one who the Bible says lives in unapproachable light, who's got eyes like fire and a voice like thunder? People need the light of the gospel now so that they can be ready to stand before him on that day and be received by the grace of God. Let your light shine. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Oh, there's a little caveat there. Did you see that? Let your light shine, right? But he says, you know what? Do make sure that when you are in the city gates representing Jesus, that you are shining the right light the right way. When you shine light, I mean, what should people be seeing? Jesus, and it says here what? They see, that they may see your good deeds, right? Not all angry, nasty deeds and all of that type of stuff, that they may see your good deeds. Peter said it this way, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. The shining of light should be accompanied with expressions of the fruit of the spirit and the bringing of glory to God. Alright, so in the next few weeks, we're going to kind of explore what it means to take your place at the city gates. We're going to explore ways to be salt and light in the city gates where God has placed you. We're going to explore some of these city gates and see what God says about them in His words. And look at at least three of these institutions that God has created. The family, human government, and the church. Because we need to know what God says about the city gates, right, if we're going to shine uh, his light there. So as we get ready to conclude this morning, I just want to pray with you for a minute. Would you all bow in prayer uh, with me? And I kind of want to just say before we pray, I just want to say thank you to so many of you who've been salt and light in our community and in our world for, in so many ways, you know, for so many years. I know I see it. God sees it. And I want to encourage you to continue in every way that God gives you to be salt and to be light in our world. Don't get discouraged when people you know, seem to be saying, hey, hide that light. We don't want that light. Just keep on showing forth the good works of the Lord Jesus Christ and shining the light in Jesus' name. Let's pray together. Oh, God, dear Heavenly Father, God, I know... That you see all of the challenges that are facing us today, facing our communities today, God, uh, facing our country. And God, I know that that, that you see that in so many ways, the gatekeepers in our culture, God, are promoting things that are ungodly, immoral, often degrading and displeasing to you, God. Yet, Father, I also know that um, there are those who step up and occupy these gates with things that are true and noble, and pure, and right, God, and praiseworthy, and admirable. God, I pray, God, make us those people. God, in whatever city gate we're able to sit in, God. God, make us, God, God, make us like Boaz. God, help us be like Job who sat in the city gates, God. Uh, God, or the husband of the noble wife in Proverbs 31. Help us be like all of those, God, and sit in the city gates, and bring salt, and bring light, God, God. Uh, God, we pray in Jesus' name. God, we also pray. God, we pray for this week, God, of prayer that we're engaging in here. Not just here, but across our country, God. God, we pray that it would have effect, God. Father, that it would result in a moving of the Holy Spirit, God, that brings a turning in our country and in our communities back to you, God. We pray on um, all of these things, God, in the name of of Jesus. Bless your people in every way, for it's in Jesus' name I pray. And Everyone said Amen. 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 God bless you. Have an awesome, wonderful week and uh, in the Spirit of God and uh, please be praying with us this week in Jesus' name. Amen.